This morning we'll be looking at a familiar passage, a passage that I spoke on before in Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 23 to 31, but we'll be reading from 17 to 31 just to get the immediate context of the passage. So the big idea here is that God makes possible what with man remains impossible. So maybe you are a person who have been sharing your faith with a loved one over many years and you notice that there haven't been a change and you're feeling down, you're feeling like giving up. The hope is that God makes possible what with man remains impossible. Or possibly you are actually a non-believer. You have tried to live a good life, tried to be a good person, and you have failed regardless. When you obey God's command in one area, you notice that you fail in another. And you notice that it's a hopeless situation, that you sin, and that by your good works, you cannot achieve eternal life. There is good news, and that is that God makes possible what with man remains impossible. So let us pray. Gracious God, I pray the Lord, even as we look at Mark chapter 10, that you would open our hearts, you would open our ears to hear the good news of the gospel. I pray the Lord that for those who are believers, that they would be encouraged by the passage, they be rebuked, corrected, encouraged. I pray the Lord that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but may we leave understanding that your word is truth, and may we be dependent upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, here we're not strangers to the gospel of Mark, but I'll just give a background on the particular passage. The gospel of Mark was written by Mark, and he's writing it to predominantly a Gentile church. Now, this Gentile church is living under the rulership of the tyrant Caesar Nero. And if we if we think about church history, we know that Nero was a, a wicked man. So what basically Mark does is to encourage the believers by reflecting upon the life of Jesus. How Jesus had hardships and persecution from the religious rulers. Now, if we examine from the beginning of Mark, we see persons like the Pharisees, they plotted to destroy Jesus. They plotted to change person's mind away from him being the messianic king. And they, they plotted to find ways in which they could destroy him as they came to that conclusion in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Now Mark chapter 10 starts off with Jesus and he's having a discourse with a Pharisee. Again, they're seeking to trap him about divorce. Jesus answers these questions wisely. And then we come to verse 17 as Jesus is beginning to go upon a, a journey. And this man comes up to Jesus. So we'll read from Mark chapter 17 to 31 now. So please follow in your word 
listened attentively. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the sin, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is for is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers, or sister or mother, or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So we, we begin with the first point in Mark chapter 10, which is your works cannot save you. So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God, as we have just read. If we look within our Bibles, and our Bibles have the titles, we would see that this is under the title, The Rich Young Ruler. Or we would see words such as great wealth or possessions, depending, depending upon the translation that you are possibly using. So a person might immediately shut off their ears and say, well, this sermon, this sermon is for those who are rich, those persons who have a lot of money. It's for those persons who are the Bill Gates, those persons who are the Elon Musk. If I bring it closer to the home, it's for those persons who are the Haloops, are the, the Busy Williams, those who have a lot of money. This isn't for me. However, this is not the case. If we examine the word which here means wealth, we would see that the word means prima, right? Wealth here is inclusive of money or property, but that's not all it is speaking towards. 
Wealth here means possessions broadly. It means anything that someone uses or needs. A thing, a matter, affairs, event, or business. So basically, anything that is useful to you, anything that you need, would come under this title of wealth. So some persons, we understand, may have more wealth than others, but at the end of the day, we all have wealth. We all have possessions. We might have a small house, we might have a, a small car, but we all have possessions. So this passage is applicable to us. To drive it further home, let us examine how the disciples understood what Jesus said. They looked at him astonished, asking him, then who can be saved? They did not state, well, some people might not be able to be saved. They understood that they were included within Jesus's, what Jesus stated. So this passage is for us. The young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response, response to him is that only God is good. Now, if you have spoken to Jehovah's Witness before, this is a verse that, you know, they hold on to. They will tell you, look, hey, here Jesus is saying that he is not God. He is denying his deity. I do not understand why you think that Jesus is God. But if we examine this passage, this is not what Jesus is actually stating. The rich young ruler referred to Jesus as merely a teacher. And then he thought that he was a good teacher, a moral teacher, a, a righteous teacher. Jesus answered, only God is good. Not stating that he is not God, but pointing out the fact that if you thought that I am just a good teacher, there is no such thing as just a good teacher. So if we think about it in today's term, there's no such thing as a perfectly moral pastor or a perfectly moral Christian. When we examine the scripture, we see that the Bible makes it clear that even the heroes of the faith, like they say, whether it's Abraham or Moses, whether it's the prophets such as Jeremiah or Isaiah, all persons have sinned. The only person that hasn't sinned is God. Therefore, there's no such thing as a good teacher. So Jesus gives the rich young ruler the law in which he should obey to be considered good. And the rich young ruler responds and says, well, hey, I have, I have kept all these things from the time I was young. Jesus looked at him and it says that he loved him. And when it says that he loved him, it, he looked at him with compassion or pity. Because this rich young ruler had a superficial view of his sin. And failed to see that he was a sinner in need of God. The young ruler is possibly how each and every one of us thought about ourselves. We thought ourselves good. We didn't sin. We didn't take the life of a person. We aren't a home wrecker. So we are good persons, right? But the reality is when we examine the scriptures, we see that we actually fail. 
In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God says that he looked down and he saw that the intentions of the heart of man were evil continually. When we think about the intentions, we're speaking here about the desires of the heart of man were evil continually. He didn't say the actions of man were evil continually. He didn't say the words of man were evil continually. He went past the actions and the words and he went to your intentions, your desires. These things are evil. Therefore, if we have intentions, but we don't act out our intentions, we do that which is morally right, we have still sinned. This is what it means that men are sinners, because our intentions or our desires are sinful. Jesus drives from this point in another aspect of the, the gospel one that I mentioned a lot. But have you committed murder? And I mean you. Have you committed murder? In Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 it says, Jesus states, You have heard it say to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say unto you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. So in there we see we see persons saying something, and we understand that that is sin, insulting your brother. But we also see if a person is basically angry with his brother, this is again an intention that this is sin. Jesus doubles down on the point again. Adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, everyone who what looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, the person hasn't done the action, but they looked basically just innocently looked, as we might say, with lustful intent. And they have already committed the sin. No one keeps God's moral law perfectly or basically well. When we think about we are all sinful, our actions are sinful, the things that we say can be sinful, but it all degrades from our heart, the intentions of our heart. So this is why Jesus looked at the rich young ruler with pity. How ignorant was he? And how many times how ignorant are we of our sin? Believing that we are better off than we actually are. Thinking that we can earn eternal life by keeping the law. According to the scripture, according to God, who is the one who will judge us, we are all fornicators, adulterers at heart. We have all disobeyed our parents, lied, and stolen. We are all sinners. This makes following Jesus more impossible than the rich young ruler thought. Therefore, we see, now that, keep, now that we don't keep the law of God, we cannot attain eternal life by works. So how impossible is, is it for man to follow Christ, but with God, it is possible. So Jesus repeated what he said in verse 24 by stating children. And this was a source of comfort to the disciples 
who know solid tasks as actually impossible. It is hard for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. So possessions, great riches, are a drive to get rich, rule the heart of the rich young ruler. And many times this is what rules our hearts. Naturally, people place their trust and their faith on anything except God. They place their trust on things that God has actually created rather than trusting the creator. And this is an effect of the fall. We don't delight in God, we hate his law, and we seek to find satisfaction in anything except Christ. The analogy that Jesus uses with it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter heaven might seem abnormal to us. But for those who were in the time of Jesus, it is just quite normal. It was an easy example. So commentators disagree on what the camel was supposed to represent. So some believe that it was a physical camel that needed to be unloaded to fit through the door of Jerusalem. So it was near to kneel or be um, offloaded the goods that it had before it entered, as seen in Genesis chapter 24, 11. Others believe here that he was referring to a cable rope and a needle's eye. However, I would agree with what was stated first that before a camel could actually enter into Jerusalem, it needed to be offloaded and made to kneel before it could actually enter. In comparison, we must leave certain things before we can actually follow Christ. All people are commanded to love and to find joy and satisfaction in Christ and not the things of the world. We could possibly say all people who profess faith in Jesus Christ will be called to give up things of this world for the sake of Christ. And again, this is the cost of being a disciple. The gospel is not a, a get-rich scheme. It isn't come to church, come to Christ, and you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. There's actually a cost to being a disciple. So what really makes a person leave all that they have, all their possessions, all the things of the world and actually come to Christ? Like the disciples, we might possibly say that who can be saved? Jesus makes it clear. He points to the fact that in man, this is impossible. We are sinners. We love the things of the world. We can't save ourselves by our good works. So it's an impossible task for men. So outside of the work of Christ, we naturally set our hearts on anything but God. But then he gives hope. But not for God, for all things are possible with God. God enables a sinner to come to him through the work of regeneration. By taking his stony heart. That heart at Jeremiah 17 speaks about uh, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. God takes that heart and he gives us a heart of flesh. 
a heart that loves God and no delights in his law. Hope is present, but just not in you. The hope is in Christ alone. See, the rich young ruler is not some uncommon event. And that's not something abnormal. That is something that each of us can actually relate to. All men are deaf to the truth and blind towards the light, outside of God's grace. And they're seeking to, to attain eternal life through works. But God's grace, people are given a new heart and are able to believe. After a person is saved, they're, they're made to look like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, in which they now start to desire the things that they once hated and hate the things that they once desired, the sin that they once desired. We grow in our love for God, glorify Him by obeying His law and making Him known to sinners. Therefore, this is why a person would decide to leave a developed state and travel to a, a developed place throughout the world to proclaim the gospel. It is why persons who would choose to be named as a follower among Christ, even though they might look strange to their workplace or their community. And this is why the saints from the early church in Acts, they sold all their possessions that so the gospel could be proclaimed. Whether we lose comforts, possessions, strains on relationships for the gospel's sake, it is worth it and it is possible. God then gives us more than we have lost. From verse 29, Jesus promises no one who has left all that they have will ever be empty-handed. Promises of eternal life are what we cling to as we forsake the worldly things for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. We will one day get to be with Christ. We will one day be perfect. No longer we will be enslaved to sin. No longer we will have to deal with illnesses that we currently deal with. This, this scope and the promise is quite wide. Whether worldly things are taken due to persecution, whether you are fired from your job or not given that promotion because you are a Christian and have a biblical perspective, whether your homes are land, the seas in Barbados or wherever you might go, Christ will give you back more than you have lost. God will restore. He owns everything. He is your portion. He will preserve your life and give you those fleeting things in a far more meaningful way. So Matthew Henry sums it up quite nicely. The advantage will be great. They shall receive a hundredfold in this time houses and brethren and sisters, not in money, but that which is equivalent. He shall have abundance of comfort while he lives, sufficient to make up for all his losses, his relation to Christ, his communion with the saints. And his title to eternal life shall be to him brethren and sister, sisters and houses and all.
When we desire things that we want hated, when we desire to have fellowship and communion with God, when we desire to have fellowship with brothers and sisters, those who are saved and called together within our local church, we see this now as meaningful. After God has changed our hearts and given us new desires, these things become meaningful to us. These things become more important to us. So amid persecution, just like those who were the believers in Mark, are being tempted to love things of the world and forsaken Christ, set your heart on things above. Nothing that you toil for in this life, you will keep. All things will go. Your house, the woodaxe will get it. Or a hurricane. If you have a job that you love, eventually you'll grow old and you will have to retire. The car that you like, new models will come out and they will start servicing it. These things will fade away. Do not set your heart on them. As Bonnie Bacham once said, one day somebody will, is going to get all your stuff. Let Christ lead you. Successful living is not attaining the world's goods, but being faithfully obedient to the command of God in his word and purposes impressed upon your heart. As the hymn goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. A disciple of Christ, if he has truly seen Christ, will joyously want to give up all his treasure for the sake of Christ and the gospel. <laughs>